Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. As promised, this episode we're branching out into Welsh mythology, with the first of the branches of the world-famous and misnamed Mabinogion. And this first story is really three tales in one, which, confusingly enough, we'll be telling over the course of two episodes. All the tales feature as their protagonist, Poik, Prince of Devid. And the setting for these stories is the Kingdom of Devid. Devid is a very real historical kingdom that once occupied the southwestern corner of what is now modern-day Wales. Much of that area today is taken up with Pembrokeshire, a county renowned for its breathtaking coastal scenery. The Kingdom of Devid existed between the end of the Roman period in the 5th century CE and the Norman Conquest in the 11th century. But now, having helpfully chronologically situated our story, I want you to forget about that. Because the Devid of this story really exists in a time outside the flow of history. And while many of the locations mentioned can actually be found on a map today, some of the others are somewhat more speculative and remote from the real world. So what you really need to know is that our story is set in the Kingdom of Devid long, long ago, in the very mists of time, when the world was still wild and magic lived. And Poik, Prince of Devid, was suffering from some very severe and very justified imposter syndrome. For a modern parallel, let us imagine that you have aced the job interview and you're starting the day as the new boss. The problem is, you don't have the slightest clue what you're doing. In fact, you're pretty sure they mixed up your CV with somebody else's, and the interview has just warmed your natural charisma. But actually, you don't even know what it is that this company does, let alone how to be in charge. And now all your new staff are here, waiting to hear what you're going to say. Okay, so that's an extreme example, but I'm sure many people listening have been in one situation or another where people expect you to know more than you actually do, and it just becomes very impolitic to speak up about it. So you just end up having to wing it and hope that no one else notices. Well, this is exactly what it felt like for Poich as he took in the faces of the members of the court. They had wished him a cheery hello, or given him a little nod of deferential recognition as he passed. The buildings around him were more elaborately adorned and splendid than any he had seen before. His instincts were to stop, to gaze at these incredible, impossible feats of architecture in dumb, stupefied wonder. But somehow, he prevented himself. Pfft, seen it all before. Everyday stuff, innit? Breathtakingly beautiful buildings. That's just, that's just how we live, isn't it? Seen it a million times, haven't I? <laughs> he tried not to sweat. He was meant to go to the hall. He strode purposely for a building which was maybe it, and he was slightly disturbed by the number of people who were following his lead. It was the hall, thank goodness. He knew what to do in halls. He went to take off his boots. Your Majesty! An unnecessary number of men rushed forward to take his boots from him. I mean, 
one person would have been an unnecessary number, him being quite capable of unshoeing himself, but there were actually several of them. As the large number of men removed his boots, two knights strode up to him purposely. Oh no, they knew. But the knights soon busied themselves taking his cloak off and replacing it with a golden garment of brocaded silk, which was by far the fanciest, most luxurious item of clothing he'd ever seen, let alone worn. He resisted the urge to hug it close to him and to caress its softness. Oh, clothes of the type I'm used to wearing. How conventional and everyday they are, he said. One of the knights gave him a look. He decided not to say anything more for a bit. All around him was a great bustle of activity as the gigantic hall was made ready for feasting. And soon the guests began arriving. Groups of the best equipped soldiers he'd ever seen took their places at the table. Various people he took to be noble lords and ladies, accompanied by their retinue, arrived and milled around. It wasn't long before the hall was full to bursting. And finally, the Queen arrived. As she swept into the room, Poich stifled a gasp. She was the most breathtakingly beautiful woman he had ever seen, and just gazing upon her, he could almost feel his legs buckle beneath him. As she set her eyes upon Poich, her face lit up with joy and desire. She smiled, walked straight to him, took his hand in hers, and greeted him with a, My love, so good to see you again. Uh, thank you, said Poich, and gulped. He thought back to two days previous, when everything had been perfectly normal. Life as Lord of all the Seven Cantrefs of Divid was pretty good for the young, fit and unattached Poich. As was the custom for royalty at the time, he generally spent his time with his retinue, touring the different courts of his realm. It kept his face known, meant he got to know the land, and ensured that he didn't overstay his welcome in any one of his domains. While there was some of that ruling stuff he had to do, by and large, Poich liked to enjoy himself. What was the point of being in charge if you couldn't do that? He had a particular fondness for the hunt, and so it was not unusual when he set off from his court at Narbreth to have a good old hunt in the forests of Linkuch. He camped nearby the hunting site, and early in the morning set off with his great host of companions, soldiers, servants, floozies, roadies, and associators hangers-on. And of course, a great pack of dogs. Lovable, bloodthirsty mutts the lot of them. He blew his hunting horn and set off on his horse after those dogs. And he must have been somewhat over-enthusiastic, because it wasn't long before he was separated from everyone else, and his dogs as well. Drat and double drat. This was a to-do. Puich listened for the baying of the hounds, and he heard dogs, but just not his own. Another pack. A pack with a very different cry. He set off through the forest towards the sound. Presently, he found his dogs reaching the edge of a wide clearing in the forest. Ahead of them was this other unknown pack, and they, in turn, were chasing a great stag. They were strange, these dogs. A gleaming, shining white, 
all except for their ears, which were the brightest red and glowed like hot iron. Puik had never seen anything of their ilk before, and he barely registered the stag being brought down by them. Such was the intensity with which he watched these animals. A real mystery, you might think. Odd, these shimmering beasts. Probably something one should be a little careful around. But Puik was a prince, and he had no truck with such common notions. So, despite his interest, he managed to summon up the wherewithal to drive the strange dogs away, and feed the stag they had brought down to his own dogs. Those adorable little tail-wagging murder machines were just delighted. As Poich was waiting for them to finish their meal, a rider came out of the forest. He was wearing a coat of grey and a hunting horn was slung around his neck. Man and horse headed straight for Poich. Look, I know who you are, said the man. But I'm not going to greet you. Right, said Poich. Well, maybe you are some important person and thus you're not obliged to. The man, who absolutely was so important that social customs didn't obligate him to greet Puich, replied, It's not that. No, the reason I'm not greeting you is your lack of good manners and your egregious discourtesy. Puich feigned ignorance. What discourtesy have you seen in me? he asked, adopting a hurt expression. The man sighed. You drove away my pack, which had killed the stag, and then you fed it to your own dogs. I'd say that was pretty discourteous, wasn't it? Puich averted his eyes, did whatever the equivalent of shuffling your feet is when you're mounted. Well, I am going to have my revenge, and I promise you will be dishonoured by the value of a hundred stags. Personally, I find the idea of dishonour having a tangible value to be slightly strange. Sorry, shopkeep, I've got no cash, but do you take payment in dishonour? Five dishonour? Okay, well, how about I drop my trousers and reveal some of those red and white boxer shorts that people always have on when they drop their trousers in comic situations, and you give me a small act of cowardice as change. Does that work for you? Fantastic. Pleasure doing business with you. But the effect of the threat on Poich was no laughing matter. He was alone. This man's dogs had glowed eerily, and he really had fucked up on the curtsy here. Kill-stealing was a pretty serious moral offence at the time. I'll make it up to you. I'll make it up to you based on whatever you're worth. Yep, that's that whole valuing thing again. The more important the rider, the more Poich would have to do to make it up. Well, let me tell you who I am. I am Arwen, King of Anavan. And at that, Puch knew just how far up the creek he really was. Anavan, the other world. That would explain the Shining Dogs. He really could have seen this coming. So, what can I do to win your friendship? He asked, desperately, but without much hope. Ah, well... Now that you mention it, you know, there is something you could do, said Arwen, King of Anavan, as if the idea had only just occurred to him. 
And so that's how it came to be. The Poich was now in the form of Arrowin, at the head of Arrowin's court, in the other world. Meeting the Queen and making like he knew all about her and his people. The unexpected deal that had been sprung on Poich was this. From tomorrow, I will give you my form, and you will go and rule my kingdom as me. You'll get the most beautiful woman to sleep with every night, and you'll get to enjoy all the activities of my court. Poich was suspicious. This was meant to be making up for a grave offence, but everything that had been described so far was just good. At the end of the year, I am down to meet a man in battle, Hafken, another king of our lands, and my sworn enemy. At the end of the year, you will fight that fight for me. And don't worry, it'll be easy for a mortal like you. Easy on one condition. When you strike with your blade, as I know you will, you must not give him another blow. Just one. Understand? Poich recapped the plan. Live as you for a year, looking like you, ruling your court, fight Hafken, who I'll easily defeat, but only if I strike him but once. Poik had been paying close attention. He was determined to make amends for his previous screw-ups. Right, well done my lad. That's it. And then we'll be square. No hard feelings. Well, this all seemed surprisingly okay, especially if what had been said about how easy the fight would be was true. But there was one issue. What about my kingdom? Oh that? Oh don't worry. I will take your form and your place as head of Divid, and I'll just do some ruling in your stead. Okay, he said, in a voice that clearly stated the whole thing was a done deal. Okay, said Puch, who felt like he was really out of options, even if he was expecting the double cross that I certainly was when I first read this tale. And over the next year, events transpire just as Arwen had said. Personally, I really want a lot more detail about just how Puik survived in the grand overworld court. It sounds like the perfect setup for a cringe comedy full of misunderstandings and embarrassing situations. The one thing that we are told is that Puik got on really well with the gorgeous noble queen. However, when the time came for them to go to bed, Puik didn't take up Arwen's rather sketchy offer, and decided not to extend his trickery to her. Rather, he turned away to face the edge of the bed, and he did so for every night of that year. Which is pretty decent of him, especially compared to Arwen, who just seems to have just seen this as part of the deal. Now, it's my fan theory, predicated on absolutely nothing whatsoever, I should say, that the Overworld Court totally knew. I'm not saying Arwen told them, but because they weren't intensely stupid, they kind of worked out what had happened when their king came back, highly nervous, asking really stupid questions, and intently watching the spoon people used for each course. But they just kept pretending, so the real Arrowin didn't know that he'd been discovered, and that they could have lots of fun at Puik's expense. Oh, as you of course know, sire, it is the duty of the king to castrate the boar with his teeth, on this our sacred festival, made upmus. Oh yes, of course, I am king, I know such things. And then they'd all snigger at him. But yes, that's all just my own headcanon there. 
however it went, there was lots of hunting and carousing and feasting, and all the usual royalty stuff. But better, because this was the other world. But eventually, the day came for Arrowin to fight Hafgan. <laughs> Everyone in the kingdom was psyched for it. And in this instance, Puig had no problem in getting advice for what he had to do, for all his nobles were desperate to give him such advice. He had to fight Hafgan, he had to do it alone. And on this, the fate of the two kingdoms rested. The ritual combat was to take place at a ford in this world. Two mighty lines of warriors faced each other on that fateful day. But only the kings came forward each on horseback. They eyed one another. Hafgan recognised his mortal enemy, and Poik saw in the eyes of this man he had never seen before the hatred that burned there for him. I wonder if, for a moment, Poik wondered whether this man really deserved to die, whether he was on the right side of this battle. I'm sure he questioned whether those assurances he'd received from Arwen a year previous about how easy this battle would be remained true. But whatever his concerns, he was far, far too deep into this whole thing to back out now. The horses approached one another, and the battle between Hafgan and Puig began, and was anticlimactic in the extreme. Puig's first blow hit Hafgan's shield, but rather than being deflected, split the shield in two, carried on, cleaving through the man's armour, the force of it clean knocking him off his steed and to the ground where he lay. This was not the way it was supposed to go for Hafgan. As Poik stepped down from his horse, the defeated man cried out, What right did you have to kill me? I claim nothing from you, and I know of no reason that you have to kill me. Just there. That little niggle about whether Arrowin was really the good guy in all of this. But now you have defeated me, don't leave me to bleed like this. Strike another blow, finish me off. And this is the bit where the audience is going. Remember what you were told, Poi. No, no, don't fall for it, just one blow. And defying much of narrative convention, Poi very much remembered that. And he refused to strike Hafgan again, thus sealing the fate of the man, or elf or god or whatever these other world beings are anyway. And he begged and he pleaded, but very soon Hafgan was dead. And following his defeat, it took all of until noon the next day for his lands to be incorporated into those of Arrowans. This rapid and crushing victory achieved, Poik kept his agreement. He headed back to the forest of Glinkuch to meet the real Arwen. This sudden absence probably greatly confused all his soldiers, if they weren't in on it. And if you were expecting some great double cross, as I was, well, not this time. You did well, my friend, said Arwen. I've heard of your deeds and your debt is definitely repaid. And on that, Arwen adopted his proper form and returned Puchs to him. And off he went to his newly expanded lands. And in an episode which draws some doubt to my headcanon, the first thing that Arwen did 
was, of course, to take his wife to bed. And she was surprised and delighted, having received not as much as a kiss in the past year. As an aside, this is from a time when women were not necessarily able to express their needs, and couples were not expected to properly discuss the difficulties of their relationships. If you've got different expectations about a key part of your relationship, it's something you should discuss with your partner, not just kind of accept it because of their whims. You can even get some help talking about it, if you need to. None of this had been available to the Overworld Queen, alas, so she just had to go along for the year of no touching at all. And while the Queen hadn't mentioned it in the past year, she had to ask now. What's happened to you? Is it the success in battle, maybe? Now that thing with Hafgan is all sorted? What do you mean? We've always had a great relationship. Talked lots, lots of sex, it's been wonderful, said the possibly quite dense Arwen. No, said the Queen. This past year or so we've not touched at all. Remember? You with the face to the wall and straight off to sleep and the get off when I gave even a hint? Ah, said Arwen, light dawning. Really? Oh. And he explained the whole thing. And the Queen didn't kick him straight out of bed and tell him to get the hell out of her life. Instead, the couple agreed that Puch had been just a really great friend. Which is certainly one of many possible explanations for his actions, and by 21st century standards, maybe not the best one. I'm much more happy to think of him as just being a good guy who didn't want to sleep with someone who didn't know who he was. But whatever. The Queen and Arwen were impressed. And we'll leave this strange overworldly land now, ruled over again by Arwen, who had defeated his opponent by tricksy mortal using means. And we'll rejoin Poich, who has returned to the court of David after his long absence. His first action was to ask his nobleman how he had ruled over this past year. He asked with some trepidation, had Arwen wreaked some vengeance for the stag here while Puch was gone, maybe by dragging his name through the dirt? But the replies that came back were all of one manner. Honestly, my liege, this past year, you've been such an excellent leader. Never before have you been such a just and kind man. You know, you've come on so much. Honestly, this year has been by far the most glorious of your reign. I can scarce believe how well you've ruled. Okay, okay, that's enough. You've answered the question. Really, but Sai, you've just been so perceptive in your judgement. Okay, you can stop now. Just just stop right there. I've got the message loud and clear. But Poik was a good sort, and though I don't know quite how he got the courage to do it, in good time he told his people of what had happened. Now you might expect that the first question the nobles would ask would be about the magic or what it was like in the other world or something like that. But nope. It was straight up. Does this mean you're not going to rule us as well as you have then? No, no of course, I'll I'll rule well. And in the years that followed, Puich and Anwin became firm friends, sending each other gifts and news from time to time. Puich's little adventure became widely known amongst his own people, and his apparent success as leader in Anavan even caused him to become known as Puich, Chief of Anavan, from that day forth. And this is the end of the first of the tales of Poich, though not the first branch of the Mabinogian. So this would be a very convenient point in the podcast to utter the line, we've got more tales of Poich, Prince of David, coming up after this word from our sponsor.
but we don't have any sponsors on this podcast, so we can begin the next tale right now. Poich was once again at his court in Nobref. It was one of his chief courts. A grand, sumptuous feast had been prepared for him, which, as you may be working out, was no uncommon affair. Such a feast would start early and last much of the day. So in the interest of pacing themselves, Poich and his retinue took a constitutional following the first course. Near the court was a mound named Gorsed Arbref. This is not a hill, but an ancient burial mound. It was old by whatever time this story is set, and full of unknown power. My lord, said some knowledgeable member of the court, there's something about this mound. You see, whoever sits down in it, well, one of two things happens to them. They may be wounded or injured, or else they will see something wonderful. Hmm, Pork considered. He was definitely a brave or arrogant sort, depending on your definition. Well, there are loads of us. I can't see how we'll be injured in such company. He said that as though he'd never witnessed battles or magic before. Which he had. But I really would like to see something wonderful. So of course, he sat on the mound. On this occasion, luck was with him. For as he sat, he could almost immediately discern a rider coming along the highway that passed by the mound. She was on a huge pale white horse, a woman wearing a shining garment of gold and silk, much as Puik had himself in the guise of Arwen. Anyone know her? asked Puik. Heads were shaken. Well, someone go and find out who she is, a woman of such noble bearing in my land. So the allotted someone strolled down the hill to greet her. The horse was going at only a slow and steady pace so it shouldn't be a problem to hail her. But when the man got to the road, he found the horse had gone past. He must just have misjudged the speed. The horse was still doing a gentle amble, so he set off at a slight jog after it. The rider's speed didn't change at all. And yet she got no closer to him. The man broke into a run. The horse's speed didn't change. And yet, it got no closer. Back to Poich went our unnamed servant. I just can't catch her, he said, somewhat bemused. Well, go back to the palace, take a horse, and get after her. You know what, take the fastest horse, just to be sure, and bring her back here. The man did as instructed. He ran back to the palace, found the fastest horse, saddled up, put his spurs to the beast, and urged it forward and soon the horse was galloping at top speed, while the horse of the rider he pursued walked along without a care in the world, and remained just ahead of him. Imagine trying to get closer to a sticker on your windscreen by speeding up your car. It was like that, but with a horse. Eventually the servant's horse became tired, and with much frustration and more than a little confusion, he returned to Poich. It's magic, isn't it? Yep, said Poich resignedly. It's magic. Well, nothing else for it. We're just going to have to go and finish that feast. The next day was pretty much a rerun of this one. First course, everyone up to the top of the mound again. Take a seat, 
And the rider appeared, her horse sauntering leisurely down the road. The luckless lad tasked with pursuing her set off again with the fastest horse. And lo and behold, precisely the same thing happened as yesterday. Puik's man's horse went incredibly fast. The unknown riders went pretty slowly and paradoxically remained just ahead of him. He returned, dejected and defeated, to Puik. That's it, sire. No horse can do better than that. Magic. Hmm. Puik thought this over. It's useless for anyone to pursue her, and yet I'm sure she has a message for someone here, and her stubbornness has stopped her delivering it. Now, where exactly he pulled this nugget of wisdom from, I haven't the foggiest idea, as none of the events so far hinted at such a thing. Maybe he learned a bit about the magical world when in Anavin. Maybe his spidey sense was tingling. But whatever the reason, Puik was not going to give up now. Well, not in general he wasn't going to give up. For this day in particular, he was done. Enough sitting around outside while there was eating and drinking and singing and carousing to be done. Back they traipsed to court, to do just that. And a great time was had by all. Turns out the life of a noble is pretty damn good. Who'd have thunk it? Now, there's a saying about the definition of insanity, which is to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. Poik either didn't subscribe to this theory or was happy to be considered insane. Poik was clearly more of a third times the charm kind of guy, and he was the one in charge. So would you believe it, but the next day they were all up that mound again. Right. This time I'll do it myself, said Poich. And at this, the horseman of the two previous days was rolling his eyes back right into his head. Poich set off at a gallop. His horse was full of energy and gave a spirited chase as he urged the animal on. And the object of his pursuit remained just ahead of him always. His animal ran on at full pelt, and after not too long he sensed it was beginning to tire. The horse ahead of him was ambling as though it had all the time in the world and was steadfastly just in front of him. To no one's surprise, least of all the horsemen from the two days previous. As his horse began to slow, Puik fell back on a novel and absolutely desperate plan. Talk to her. Maiden, he cried out, somewhat presumptuously. For the sake of the man you most love, he said, yet again quite presumptuously. Wait for me. At those words, the rider turned in her saddle, cast the pursuing prince a friendly look, and said, I'll wait gladly, and you know something, it really would have been better for that horse of yours if you'd asked me that a while ago. And she halted, drew back the exquisite headdress that concealed her face, and fixed her gaze on Puch. With a great effort, he halted his own horse, just in time not to make a complete fool out of himself by overshooting. He tried to look cool, relaxed, as if it had been nothing at all. Lady, where did you come from, and where do you go? he asked, diplomatically avoiding asking about the really fast horse, or tacking the words Cotton-Eyed Joe onto the end of that sentence. I am just going about my business, she said, and I am very glad to see you though apparently she wasn't glad enough to stop her horse without being asked. Well, my warmest welcome to you, said Puig, who is increasingly having difficulty forming words, 
because most of his brain was taking up realising how unsurpassed in beauty this woman was, such that all others he had ever seen looked positively ugly by comparison. Though that said, he had believed something rather similar about the Queen of the Otherworld, so maybe he was just prone to mentally hyperbolizing the attractiveness of his latest crush. And... Uh, will you tell me anything about this business of yours? Smooth, very smooth. Poik mentally kicked himself. The woman smiled. Well, my main purpose is actually to see you. That's just about the best business you could have, whoever you are. Oh yes, well I am Rhiannon. And my father wishes to give me a husband against my will. But I have only ever wanted one man. I want you. And so, I have come to ask you to marry me. What do you say? And that's where we're going to put the bookmark in this episode. Next time we'll see if events continue to fall quite as neatly into place for our Prince of Divid as they have since the start of the story. And let's take a little detour to discuss Welsh. Today's story was originally written in Welsh, which is a language that I cannot speak, which will be obvious to anyone listening, Welsh and non-Welsh speakers alike. Sorry about that. Now, the British Isles today is largely made up of English speakers, with only a small fraction of the population speaking another language as their mother tongue. And it's easy to believe it has always been so. But actually, throughout most of its history, the British Isles have been a place of many different languages. So the stories from times past have come down to us in many tongues, not just in some oral tradition, but in written texts widely distributed. For instance, we previously looked at Fionn McCool and those tales from Irish sources, while the manuscripts from which the Mabinogion is drawn were written in Welsh in the 1300s. The Welsh language is a brophonic language, and that means that it is the direct successor to the Celtic brophonic languages which before the coming of the Anglo-Saxons were spoken all over mainland Britain. The history of this has broad implications for thinking about the origin of stories. Today, the divisions between England and Wales might seem very defined, and because of its size, Wales can appear to be an adjunct to its larger neighbour. But in many ways, the Welsh language and the mythology passed down through that language is a link back to the culture and mythology that stretched across mainland Britain. This is the Celtic culture that predates the Anglo-Saxon period, and the language itself goes all the way back to the Iron or even Bronze Age. So while many of the stories told in Welsh might be set in modern-day Wales, like today's was, many of them hark back to a wider British tradition, and indeed a later story in the Mabinogion has its characters roaming through a Celtic Britain and visiting a Celtic London. Now rightly, we should probably be referring to the language as Cymraeg, which is the word used for the Welsh language in Welsh, because the word Welsh is actually an English word, which is basically an Anglo-Saxon slur, just meaning foreigner. By the way, have I said Welsh enough that it's lost all meaning for you yet? Because it's getting that way for me. Now, I'm not saying the stories are a direct read to old legends. We'll discuss that in some detail when we look at the Mabinogion generally. But there certainly are links there. Now, this pan-British Welshness doesn't apply to the stories of Poich, which are certainly centred around a kingdom that was Wales then, and is Wales today. I wanted to mention it just to highlight how what might seem a local story now can have at least some of its roots in a wider epic history most of which is sadly lost to time. 
Now, understanding any story written down centuries ago involves dealing with changes in the meaning of the language, in trying to understand something that has been removed from the place and time of its original telling. This allows me to make snarky asides when really I just don't understand the context of a story from my own very limited modern perspective. And that applies even to stories written in English. But this is doubly so for a language that I cannot read, and the result of this is that, like most of the people of the world, I'm very reliant on translations to access these tales. I've predominantly used the very famous translation by Lady Charlotte Guest from about 1840, and a much more recent translation by Sinead Davis from 2007. So I owe a massive debt to them. Okay, so having laboured the Welsh point long enough, let's talk a little bit about what the Mabinogion is. Now there is a hell of a lot to say here, so I'm going to keep to the absolute bare bones. There are many other stories to tell from this book, and I'll endeavour to flesh out the subject as I tell them. But really, people have written very long articles, and indeed books of their own, on this subject. So, the Mabinogion is 11 Welsh legends that come from two manuscript sources. The White Book of Faverch, from about 1350, and the Red Book of Hergust, from 1400 or so. The evocative coloured names of those sources refer to the bindings on the manuscripts, by the way. Now, the eleven tales were gathered together as a whole by the aforementioned Lady Charlotte Guest, though they had been referred to together as the Mabinogi for some time before that. Now, many of these tales are very different in theme, and come from different periods and sources, though they do share the distinction of being prose tales from a time when the majority of legends were written in verse. Of the eleven, four stories are referred to as the four branches of the Mabinogi, and stand together and distinct. It's branch one that we've told about half of today. Focusing in on these four only, they're written down in the 14th century or so, but they're definitely much older, and while there is little common agreement, they may have dated to as early as 1050 in a form similar to the way we know them today. At that time there would have been oral tales, and much of the format of the story suggests they're designed to be easily memorisable and to be told to an audience invoking repetition, rules of three, and other rhetorical devices. And inevitably, when telling these tales in English, some of these devices, such as alliteration, just don't come through. Now, though these stories were composed in the 11th or 12th century, there's older elements in them than that. One of the key reasons they've become so widely known and studied is they appear to have pieces of them that, as I said earlier, tantalisingly hark back to older Celtic legends and traditions. The religion, mythology and entire culture of the Celts was once widespread right across Europe. But it has been mostly lost over time, largely because these cultures were not literate. So any glimpses of Celtic mythology we may be able to glean through these stories provide a tiny window into a long forgotten and very ancient world. Which is really exciting. The problem, however, comes in identifying precisely which, if any, of the elements in these stories are genuinely Celtic in origin. A great deal of ink has been spilled over this subject, so much so that now more academic focus is actually on the medieval context of these tales, which is probably more important in them than any glimmers of old Celtic gods. And all of that has only just scratched the surface, but we're running out of time. In summary, in case your head is swimming with all of this, the Mabinogion is 11 stories written in Welsh from the 1300s, but with much earlier roots. 
That's left us with no time to look at today's story and our favourite protagonist whose name I've pronounced in different ways on a whim, Poich Pendevid. Let's just say, I'm not overly impressed with Poich. He's one of these supposed heroes who begins pretty well off, you know, prince and all, and then makes mistakes that, rather than having consequences for him, actually result in everything getting better. But hey, while I doubt the motivation behind it, I do respect that one of the morals that does emerge from this episode is don't sleep with someone under false pretenses. Which seems a pretty good moral. Also, while I'm complaining about it, I would like the other world to be far more interesting and, well, other. Which I recognise is quite a silly bias to have. But I'm just not a massive fan of the it's just our world but a bit shinier which is a bit like the elven world in our early episode on Thomas the Rhymer, actually. Now, remember that pack of dogs that Arwen had? The ones that Poik chased off at the beginning of the story? Well, in some legends, they are said to hunt down the souls of the damned across the sky. So that's a bit more dramatic. Anyway, next episode we'll see how Poik gets on with Rhiannon, and watch as events take a turn for the very weird indeed. It'll be totally clawsome. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast then please do share it with others or give it a review as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.